Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Everything in our lives that we relate to through media is through good storytelling. Not only do we want to learn something, but we want to be entertained along the way. From Offscript Media, I am Matthew Zachary, and this is Out of Patience. On the show today... What happens when a legacy award-winning NPR radio producer slash young adult cancer survivor is interviewed by a gracefully aging, semi-legacy, non-award-winning, non-NPR producer slash young adult cancer survivor? Does a media event horizon manifest in the clouds? Well, let's find out. Kara McGurk-Allison is an award-winning public radio and podcast producer with 25 years of experience in storytelling, production, and journalism. Among a ton of other insanely incredible things she's done in her career to date, she produced and launched the critically acclaimed show for NPR, Hidden Brain. Listen in as we swap war stories and compare notes about the nostalgic virtues of audio, how the golden age of fireside chats now lives on demand in our pockets, and we wax poetic on whether having too many podcasts in the medium is diluting value. We also dip into the waters of survivor guilt, being your own advocate, and maybe a desirable message to the public. Please don't start a podcast. Enjoy the show. Cara, I can't say enough about how grateful I am for you to come on my show. I've been a huge fanboy for many, many years, and we're going to talk about all your incredible work in radio. But how often have you been interviewed by a radio host having been a radio host? And are we creating some kind of broadcast event horizon? <laughs> yeah, not very often. Yeah, it's it's. we're going to have to see if I can actually replicate like the stuff that I do with the microphone and putting me in front of the microphone. I, I, I don't know. This is a grand experiment that some vortex might open up and swallow us. But uh, we'll survive. We'll make it through. Well, if it's a if it's a Marvel universe, there's a sky beam. We'll just look for the sky beam. Yeah, you know, ironic that you should mention Marvel. So I'm talking to you from my 11 year old son's bedroom because, ironically, it's the quietest room in the house right now, and um, it is plastered with Marvel universe stuff. I've got posters in front of me. I've got comic books to the right of me. So yeah, there'll be a theme to this conversation. My reaction to that is, you're doing the right thing, mom. <laughs> Yay! Well. Are we? Because dad has all of these comic books that he collected from when he was William's age. And I mean, collected, like in the sleeves collected. And Oh, yeah. Like dust dust jacket collected. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so William's going to be 12 next month. And Mike still hasn't let him look at the comic books. They're, they're, oh, wow. They're that precious to him. So are we doing the right thing? I, I don't know. 
don't know. Time will well, tell. you mean you weren't given the How to Raise Kid Handbook when he was born? Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, of course you're given the books, but then you throw them away. <laughs> <laughs> it was like when I got sick, there was like the Here's How to Beat Cancer, Dick and Jane coloring guide. No, eh, didn't really help. Oh, Goodbye. absolutely. And, you know, people give those to you because they they think they're being helpful. And mm, yeah, I still have them, but I don't think I've opened any of them. You know, one of the most fascinating things I just wanted to talk to you about in general, and you put this on one of your websites, and yes, I've done all my research on you, and I know more than more than maybe I should, but just enough to be curious enough to ask you the following. Okay. Your quote is that it is an underappreciated luxury producing for radio. And I was giddy reading that because everyone, oh, it's radio. It's simple. It's easy. Just get up behind a mic and talk. Like, like someone says, oh, pharmacies, just push pills. No. There's a lot behind that. And I just want to hear you talk about, yes, radio is hard as fuck to do and you got to do it right. And it's not just getting behind a mic and, you know, it's so underappreciated. Tell me more. It is hard um, and it is underappreciated. And I think that one of the things that we in the radio and podcasting world are struggling with, I mean, you know this because you've been podcasting forever, is sort of this new realm of, I say, everybody and their grandmother has a podcast Right. So it's it's good and bad because it's a platform that anyone can do. But for those of us who've been in the audio field for years, um, it's challenging because, you know, we're either journalists and we have certain standards when it comes to audio quality, when it comes to content. And it really kind of hurts my ears sometimes, you know, to be listening to what I call, you know, sometimes kitchen table podcasts that, you know, are just people chatting. But that's kind of the new realm of things like podcasts are the new blogs. But, you know, I've been doing radio since I realized the other day I filed my first piece for an AM radio station in 1991. Whoa. That makes me feel really old. Yeah, I just graduated high school, I think. And so, you know, it's changed. As you know, technology has changed. Back in the day, we were cutting tape with a razor blade and a grease pencil. When I first went back to NPR at 1998, I guess, after working at a radio station, um, I thought they would have been digital and they were still cutting tape. My dad taught me how to splice Super 8 in the 70s when I was like seven years old. Oh, it's so cool. I mean, it's a cool thing, right? It's tactile, it's artistic, but you can do so much more now with digital than you could, you know, back with back with tape. But it's always been, you know, especially in the public radio world, it's always been a craft. And I think that's why I feel so appreciative and often remind my colleagues that we should be appreciative for the the work that we have to do because, you know, at the end of the day, like even if you have a really hard and horrible day because you've worked with challenging people or an edit didn't go quite right, you know, at the end of the day, we're still making radio, right? <laughs> well, it's just the super saturation of how we perceive content today. And one of the one of the most favorite nostalgic moments that happens to me is when I'm doing the Times Crosser puzzle and it's a four-letter word and it says radio button. And it's AM, FM. And that's all you need oh is gosh. AM, FM. And who remembers AM, FM? Now there's Sirius and there's USB and there's Apple CarPlay. No, AM, FM. How nice is that? I know. I know. I get nostalgic about that kind of thing, too. And, you know, it's hard now in the times that we live in because radio is not doing well, um, which is, you know, podcasting is. But, you know, we're seeing all kinds of radio networks fold and losing quarter to a half of their listeners because people aren't commuting to work during covid um, so it's been it's a really interesting time to be in this field. Uh, so I do feel really appreciative to be able to have work. 
going back to what you said before, like the dilution based way in which you make something available to everyone kind of gets in the way of people that quote, take it seriously or be do it for business or try to be more blah, blah, blah. I, right. I, I go back to like when, um, when blogs came out and everyone became a journalist and a social media oh, yeah. guru and I have an RSS feed and a blogger account and everything. And then it, they made it really easy to start a nonprofit and everyone starts a nonprofit because the someone died foundation and great. Sorry, sorry for your loss, but please stop diluting <laughs> the pool. And now everyone came up. I remember when I started my, my broadcast show in 2007, I had like six computers and it looked like the matrix, you know, with like you have nine monitors and I had no idea what oh, I was yeah. doing. And like the, just some kind of ad hoc Rick and Morty thing in my Dexter's lab that just happened to work. And today you need like $20 and you can get it done. What's your perspective on the dilution of the medium? It's twofold. So let's look at the positive, which is something you just mentioned. So just last week, I bought my first USB microphone. <laughs> Yay! And right. And they were talking under $100, something I don't need an interface for, I can plug right into my laptop. And I was so giddy about it. I ripped it out of the box and I plugged it in. And I grabbed my husband, uh, who's known me, you know, since the early radio days. And I was like, look at this thing. <laughs> He's like, yeah, <laughs> everybody I'm talking to on Zoom has them. But it's interesting because even five years ago, six years ago, we didn't have the technology that's available to us today. Because there are over a million podcasts out there, companies have stepped up and we now have you know, USB microphones, and we've got digital ways like you and I are speaking to each other over a computer. There's, you know, gone are the days where you have to send out a live producer to hook up a microphone and a kit in front of somebody. So that to me is the upside of this, let's call it oversaturation of podcasts, that technology is finally catching up. The downside is you can put a lot of work into a podcast or radio show but because there's over a million of them out there, it's really hard to get seen. And that's kind of tragic in a way. So I think what's the next phase of things like in podcasting world will be more curated ways of finding content uh, and easier ways of finding content. And I think once that happens, things will get easier. But right now, you know, you scroll environmental stuff and thousands of podcasts come up. It's like, how do you learn to differentiate and discern what are worth your time and which ones are worth your years. Yeah, and I want to circle back to this because the reason I just started yet another podcast was really around a media company that would hopefully serve a different role in regular media, not social media. We have to keep remembering right. radio is regular media. I did want to tap your brain down the Wayback Machine when you first got into producing for, uh, for radio on the value of the journalistic nature of guests and vetting guests is I going back to the uh, the unappreciated luxury vetting guests yeah. to me because I produced maybe 500 episodes of the stupid cancer show oh, vetting what yes it was I, I don't have hair I had no hair back then I have less hair now if that's possible vetting <laughs> guests was the, the bane of the existence of my team not that we didn't have great guests but talk to us about you know this is the the underbelly of programming and editorial calendar development, guest procurement. 
Yeah, it's it's tricky. Like back to the underappreciation thing, right? So, you know, if you've got a favorite show or a favorite podcast, you really connect with that host, but you might not necessarily understand there's a team behind that person that's really making the, the podcast or show happens. As a producer, you know, not only are you finding the right guests or pre-interviewing them, because just because somebody is at Harvard and they're smarty pants doesn't mean they sound good, right? They might sound like shit. So you need someone who can talk. Um, so oftentimes being a producer, you'll have a conversation with these folks just to see if they can hold a conversation with you. Right. Um, and oftentimes <laughs> the nearer they are, the worse they sound. <laughs> yeah. So, right. Because it's our job as producers like a really complicated topic or something entertaining and having guests on that could explain it to your average listener. We're not all experts, right? So that's challenging. And I think that oftentimes it sounds effortless when a, a really good host has a terrific conversation with somebody, but there's a lot of behind the scenes going on there to make sure that that A, is the right person to have on the show and B, all the right questions have been formed to make conversation flow. Right, because your end user is the listener, not the guest. Right. No. <laughs> it's hard to mm -mm. do this. I can't tell you how many times people came to me and said, man, I'm thinking of starting a charity. And I said, don't start a charity. And lo and behold, now that I'm back on the air, and I still say the air because that's how old we are to say on oh, the yeah. air, even though it's the virtual air, I don't know, zeros and ones air, is I want to start a podcast. I'm like, no. Don't start a podcast just because you think you need to start a podcast. Who's your audience? Who's going to listen? Who cares and why? And then how do you find yourself in this, you know, 1.x million podcasts? I want to go back to this notion of guest procurement with the through the lens of like media training and storytelling versus telling your story. That's really probably the trickiest thing as a producer to, to find people who can do that. Especially if you're working on like a science podcast where you're often getting think tank folks for politics or scientists from universities. Um, and they have like those PR folks who do media training with them, right? And they teach them to talk in sound bites. So that's great if you're doing a newspaper interview, right? So if I'm talking to you from a newspaper and we've got a half an hour to chat, I just want you to give me a you know, really quick thing so that I can paraphrase it in my article. But when it comes to podcasts, they really need to be conversational. It's something that you're really good at, right? And so that's part of the producer's job. Again, going back to this, can this person really break it down for me? Can this person be real and honest? Can this professor give me real life examples that my listeners can relate to? And storytelling, right? I used to, <laughs> I told people at NPR years ago how much I hated that buzzword storytelling. And now I use it all the time. Um, <laughs> It is so, because it used to be like first person narrative, you know, when This American Life came out, like everything was first person narrative. Now it's storytelling. Um, but it's really true. Like everything in our lives that we relate to through media is through good storytelling. So, you know, it doesn't matter if you're watching a YouTube video or something on TikTok or a Facebook thread or you're listening to a podcast. It's all about good storytelling. And I think the stakes are higher now um, because we have an expectation. Not only do we want to learn something, but we want to be entertained along the way. Right. And this is the bifurcation between like narrative storytelling and conversational storytelling. And yep. you, you've towed the line between both of them and they both have pros and cons. 
I've always been a conversationalist. I always hope I have a kitchen table conversation. And I always hope the guest I'm talking to doesn't make this a monologue about them. But I, I did want to share with you a funny life hack. I'm curious if this has come into your realm across the spectrum of all the people you've spoken to. If someone's tended to drone on and on and you don't want to do too much post-production and mark all the stuff that is irrelevant, you scream their name really loudly. <laughs> Cara, what? Wait, whoa, what? Yeah. <laughs> then they kind of get shaken out of their little monologue and they come around and you reset the stage. And yeah, I just, I learned that from another amazing producer friend of mine that it works every time. Oh my gosh, that's so fantastic. I can't say I've ever done that before, but I, I, I might now have to. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great little skill that I learned. It works every time. And I, I swear to God, it's, it's like the little, uh, you know, if, you, if there's a skull and bones way to, figure out how to weave your way to great conversation on someone that's droning along for all the right reasons, I would presume, hopefully, is let's get back on track by saying, Cara, <laughs> like, what? what's going on? Who are you? By just scaring the shit out of them yes. so that they realize that they've been talking for 10 minutes. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. I, I know. love that. I No, I've never done that. I mean, it's, it's really... Um, so if they if we do get somebody who tends to go on for a long time, we tend to just fix it in post. And it tends to be I keep going back to this example but it does tend to be professors because they're so used to talking by themselves in front of a classroom um, and they have to fill up that hour and 20 minutes by themselves so they kind of feel like it's their job when they you bring them into the studio to fill up time and it's not so you know that's kind of part of the expectation of a producer to tell the guest right like we we don't want you to drone on and on and on and we might interrupt you politely <laughs> if you're going on too long <laughs> Back with our guest after the break. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Picking up from where we left off, I want to just ask you a basic question. And how do you define the difference between podcasting and radio? Um, technically, or do you mean like uh, 
content wise. Well, I think for me, it's audio, right? Audio is audio. But I remember right. like when I started my show and back in the day with old, old school NPR, if you missed the show, you were done. You're screwed. There's no way to get right. it, right? My show was like Mondays from nine to 10. If you missed it, we're sorry. If you want to watch Friends in 1988, you got to wait 25 <laughs> years for on demand, right? T tough luck to watch that episode of Blossom that you missed when you were nine years old. You got to watch it yeah. now on Hulu. I get you. Yeah. It's appointment listening, right? So that's what's that's what's different. Um, so even my radio habits have gone down significantly since COVID. So I tend to listen to the radio in the car. So I have a, you know, either big commute to work or taking my son to school. Like that was always my listening time. Podcasts are true appointment listening. Um, in radio, there's very few shows that people will actually mark on their calendar. Okay, I need to listen at Saturday at 10 a.m. Um, we tend to just listen to whatever's on in our favorite channel, if it's music or if it's news. But, you know, podcasts are personal. And I feel like listeners really find their favorites and they feel like they really get to know the. You must run into this. People feel like they know you, right? Well, I mean, there's like the who you are and who people think you are. Well, that's that's exactly what I mean. Right. So they they listen to you, you know, and they think, oh, he's my best friend. <laughs> <laughs> he he gets me like he you know, I, I'm going to tune in because, you know, you know, Matthew really understands what I'm going through. I mean, that's kind of what podcasts are about. That's why I always say podcasts are personal. So it sometimes happens with radio, especially in public radio, because they're very host heavy um, and people have their favorite hosts. And I think that podcasts that can happen with hosts and content, but we form our favorites and we can listen to them whenever we want. So I often ask people, cause I love to know like, when do you listen to podcasts? And it's always while well, I'm doing the dishes, while I'm doing housework, when I go for a jog, like it's something that comes with us. Right. And it accompanies our life. Um, and I think it's that convenience that has made podcasts so popular. Yeah, I've conflated them to the old Victriolas in 1934 during the FDR fireside chats now in your pocket while you're going for a jog. And right. you get to choose what you can listen to. But this kind of doves into what I want to talk to you more about, which is that, you know, I running a nonprofit for so long and being in patient advocacy and cancer for blah, blah, blah. Having the, you know, you never know your first. I had the first cancer radio show and whatever, whatever. The notion that podcast as consumer culture or mass adoption being the standard of, of existence today, I really was bereft to find anything in the space that was speaking to patients and people going through yeah. the, sh with the shit happens store, except me. And this isn't about me, but you know, we talk about like you just said, it's personal, it's private. It's you get to know these people more. They're, they're, they're the, the peers you wish you were having a beer with that are on the air that you want to talk to and get to know. It didn't exist in healthcare writ large. Right. And we can jump right into, you know, holy shit, you're in the cancer store. Welcome to that club that no one wanted to join. Mm -hmm. Where did you consume any content that gave you any sense of relevancy of what to do and how to think? When I was diagnosed? Is that what you mean? Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I listened to any podcasts. <laughs> right, because there weren't any, right? And right, right. I, I think it was list serves or, you know, it's, that's, this is the thing when I met you is that I really kind of didn't realize how much was available and sort of the background work that went into making everything that's available to us as patients. Um, you know, you're given that, that hard binder, three ring binder, right? That has all of the, in the back slot is all of the resources. Right. <laughs> and I feel like, today, you know, like your podcast should be on there because again, back to podcasts being personal, they're also niche. 
So I can find a podcast that speaks to me and a host has the same kind of feelings that I do. So for example, when you have cancer and somebody in your family hasn't gone through that as a patient, they relate to you as best they can, right? Yep. They're your they're your caregivers and they try to understand. But unless you've actually gone through it yourself, you you can't completely understand everything, like the physical side effects and the emotional side effects and, and all that. So having people like yourself that listeners can relate to and listen to, it's a comfort. And to know that there is this whole group of advocates that have come before me that have, you know, made shows like yours possible, but also like legislation and nonprofit groups and resources. Um, it's mind blowing. And that's been one of the great things about getting to meet you is, um, you know, learning all these things. As a journalist, you know, I thought that I had done my due diligence and I'm still learning more. Yeah, I mean, this has been like the uh, that thing in Indiana Jones he tries to steal in the beginning of the movie. No one knows how to get to it. And, you know, my allegory is always, you know, when bad things happen to good people, you enter like a, a, a store with no greeter. And every nonprofit's dream is to be in that moment when the doctor says you have cancer. Oh, here's here's one thing to do. Here's 10 things to do. Here's a list. And you're you're all Charlie Brown teacher. You have no idea what the hell's going on in those couple of moments or the couple of days or weeks. And, right. you know, going back to when, you know, when Apple launched their app store, they had that. There's an app for that. Well, there's no podcast for that in healthcare, whether it's cancer, diabetes, hepatitis, hemophilia, whatever it is, there really isn't like a podcast for that, like explains the welcome to the club, we're just as pissed as you, join us, we're not going to yeah. judge you, and who gives a shit what you have, we're here, we're family. That's nice to say, but from a content perspective, I think I was, <laughs> this is going to be a really weird, like reverse engineering thought experiment here, but I was upset when you didn't know about the whole universe of cancer. But how the hell would you? Because you weren't looking for it. It's a demand-only content market. Yeah, it's true. And it's interesting because as a journalist, I think I just went down a different path. So when I got diagnosed, I really went into journalism mode. And I came up with a list of 10 women who had gone through this before me. And I set out and interviewed them. So I think I actually probably got to about six before I was like, okay, I think I have enough information. And then after I interviewed the six women about their experiences and which hospitals and doctors they liked, I then picked three hospitals and interviewed the oncologist and the surgeon for each hospital. Now we're talking, I just had stage one and I did, all, I spent six weeks doing research on best treatment practices. And never forget, I demanded one-on-one uh, -on -one FaceTime with the radiologist at my local hospital. And they were like, oh, he doesn't do that. I'm like, oh no, 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 he will. <laughs> and I walked binder full of questions and the poor guy's face just turned white. <laughs> but, you know, so for me, because I have that background where I'm not afraid to ask tough questions, that was the route I took. But what if you're not? What if you are not accustomed to doing that? What if that is just way too much anxiety for you? You know, what if you don't know 10 women who've come before you who have this disease? That's why it's so important to have advocates like yourself and shows like this that in the privacy of your own home, you know, you can tune in and you can find information and humor and people who've come before you. Um, so I think 
I just went about it a different way, but I think I had the same results. Well, you came to the table oddly pre-prepared, like you had a sous chef in advance of eating the meal who did, right. you know, so you had the gumption, the journalistic background, the, the inherent curiosity to say, what the hell's going on? I do want to just point out for the listener's sake, you know, I know I noticed you said I just had stage one. Mm-hmm. there's always this perception of someone worse off than you or someone better off than you. And I tend to really just want to level set that conversation because, yeah, things are going to always suck more or less for someone else. But the, the notion of being scared to death that your life's going to change on a, in a moment and not knowing whether you're going to live or not, not knowing all these things, it's the life interrupted commonalities that we have that drive us yeah. to have to deal with the situation we're given, not better off than anyone else or, or, or any one thing. I just... I'm always on a soapbox about people feeling maybe a sense of of survivor guilt that someone had it worse off than them. Oh, I definitely have that. I mean, I I will tell you the number of doctors who told me how lucky I was that I only had stage cancer. I at one point got up and screamed at a doctor and said, you never tell a cancer patient that they're lucky. And I walked out of the room. Wow. Good Um, for you. Yeah. I mean, it was, but it was just, I must have, I don't know, had a moment or something. I really didn't get it at first. Now I know what they mean. Like having, I was stage one, grade three, so I had to do chemo. But, you know, now I understand what they mean having seen friends with stage four or, you know, folks that had to do a lot more chemotherapy than I did. I get what they mean, but I agree with you. It's not something that should ever be said or thought. Right. Cancer sucks, like no matter what, no matter what stage you have. Absolutely. I want to wrap up by uh, having a little bit of peer-to-peer support because you chose to go from like the deep end of the ocean to a possibly deeper end of a different ocean by going solo as a podcaster. And having been in that space in my second bedroom, having no idea what I was doing, yelling into a mic with a monologue like Des Miller every week on a Monday, (laughs) you know, I, I didn't realize I was setting a precedent for anyone, but I remember just having... No handrail, no guardrail, but you walked into being a solo podcaster aware that it was going to be different, but you were kind of prepared in advance. What was it like for you to do that that self-experiment? It was really fun and really challenging. I think the reason I did it was because when I left NPR in 2016, I pretty much spent most of my career working for either a radio station or NPR. And you always have such a huge support team. So you've got marketing and communications and PR folks and, oh, my computer's glitchy, let's call IT. None of that is available when you're a solo podcaster. And as I started taking on more clients to help them realize their own podcast dreams, uh, I realized, realized pretty quickly that I could not relate and give them the actual factual information that they needed. Um, so I created a podcast by myself and did all the hats from music scoring to script writing to reporting, you know, everything, marketing and PR so that I could learn. And I spent a year doing this and then wrote a little essay about it. A couple of things that I learned about, which were humbling, uh, that one is that nobody will love your podcast as much as you do. (laughs) True. It is your baby. (laughs) Yeah, it's your baby. And even when you're trying to get, you know, people to buy ads or people to help spread the word and you're so excited about what you're doing and it's, you know, really cool and you'll love this too. And I especially found, you know, with like uh, PR agencies and so forth that that definitely wasn't the case. Um, So that was pretty humbling. I found that you have to work really hard to get listeners. So in NPR world, the producer has this luxury, back to that word again, 
of pretty much wearing a producer hat only. You know, maybe there's little hats underneath there. Like you do some writing, you do some editing, you do some production work, you do some pre-interviews. But, you know, that's your job is to think about making great content. And somebody else down the hall makes sure that stations pick it up or that it gets out into iTunes the right way. You know, somebody else is doing the pretty artwork and putting stuff up on the web to attract listeners. So it was a real shock to me that lo and behold, thousands of listeners just don't come a running. <laughs> right. Uh-huh. You know? Yeah. And uh, and very humbling. Very, very humbling. And when I wrote my essay and I, I you know, just put it out there for some podcasting folks, I, I felt bad because a lot of them being okay, if you're coming from this background, this media background, what hope does that have for me? <laughs> yeah, I know, right? It was like, you no, ruined it for everyone. I kind of, I kind of didn't. I didn't mean to sound disparaging the genre or anything, but um, I just wanted people to know that it's not as easy as they think. Back to our initial conversation, right? Our initial question. It's not as easy as you think to right. do something well and to attract listeners which leads me to jerry springer's final thought <laughs> so you want to start a podcast huh Ugh. what's your response don't <laughs> <laughs> oh i knew we were related but now we're really related wow <laughs> for pure selfish reasons because it's just there's too many out there no um i think i probably spend a lot of my time with clients being really truthfully honest and realistic. And I would say nine times out of 10, they decide not to do a podcast after talking to me. Um, so if you're doing a podcast with me, you know, I really believe in what you're doing, because I will be the first person to tell you not to do one. And why is that? Because it's the expectations of audience and unrealistic expectations of metrics for success. And so when someone comes to me and says, my company is failing and I think doing a podcast is going to bring in all kinds of money for us. No. <laughs> right. Uh, so that's the, the crux of the problem right there is having realistic expectations. Someone says to me, oh, you know, we have this new marketing plan and doing a podcast is just going to be another tool in the tool belt. Yeah, that's that's great. You know, you're not expecting millions of dollars and millions of listeners, then try to do it. So that's sort of my my soapbox when it comes to doing podcasts. So now I'm I'm thrilled to share with all of our listeners right now that Car and I are partnering on a new podcast called So You Want to Start a Podcast? <laughs> said don't. no one ever. Said no one ever. Said no one ever. Anyway. Dot, dot, dot. Dot, don't. dot, dot. <laughs> um, yeah. Allison, executive producer at Platform Media LLC, executive production consultant right here at Offscript Media, breast cancer advocate, survivor, BFF, amazing media, guru of the stars. I have no other adjectives that would do justice to the epicness Aww. that is you. Thank you for being on my show, the first of many. Oh my gosh, thank you so much. This was this was like the uplifting boost I needed this week, so thank you. <laughs> you got it. Thank you so much. Stay well. Aww. You too. That's all for today, folks. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is a product of Offscript Media. Our executive producer is Matthew Zachary. Our senior producers are Jen Horanjeff and Andrew McDowell. Darren Tun is our production intern. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Matthew Zachary. Our theme music is by the Mike Van Allen Quintet and by Mara. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. 
Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make guest recommendations. For more information, visit offscript.com. <laughs>